This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. I know I say that every week, but this week it's different. <laughs> Aaron Ross is the CEO of PredictableRevenue.com, the author of the phenomenal best-selling book, Predictable Revenue and From Impossible to Inevitable. And if you are even remotely interested in anything to do with, let's see, sales, winning new business, getting attention in a crowded marketplace, lead generation, entrepreneurship, writing best-selling books, having nine children, you might get a bit of a sense that I was tense in my voice. That's my nervousness because I'm speaking with the Aaron Ross. He had no idea what impact he had on my career. I was trying to be cool the whole interview and trying to play it down. When I was heading up new business for an agency at the start of my career, his book, Predictable Revenue, was literally my Bible. I would go into meetings and recite passages from his book as if they were my ideas and people would be literally eating out of my hand. And those ideas around lead generation, seeds, nuts and spears, as he calls them, are kind of old now. But in 2012, it was really revolutionary stuff. He was the CEO of an unsuccessful company that failed because he didn't have an understanding of sales. So he hired a VP of sales, but he abdicated that responsibility instead of delegating it. Um, he then went to, after it's failed, he went to Salesforce so he could really learn sales properly. And that's where his career really took off. Two best-selling books later and a multi-million pound company of his own. He's really the definition of failing your way to success. Look, I'm just going to stop talking now and just say, Without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Aaron Ross. Aaron Ross is the CEO of PredictableRevenue.com. He's also a keynote speaker, the author of the phenomenal Predictable Revenue and From Impossible to Inevitable. He is an inductee to the Sales Hall of Fame and dad of nine. He now lives in Edinburgh with his family. Aaron Ross, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Wow, look at that intro. Actually, I even forgotten about the Sales Hall of Fame theme thing. Too many, too many awards to remember. I'm just, yeah, I'm just, I sparkle so, so brightly. It's hard. Right. To <laughs> Excellent. Well, well, thank you so much for being on, on the show. I'm a huge yeah, fan amazing. of your work. Um, I, I first heard about you in 2012 when I was um, doing sales and new business for a B2B tech agency in Birmingham. And there was a consultant that, that came in. I think he was from London. He was such a nice guy, very knowledgeable, very smart. And he basically said to me, in 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 uncertain terms, no uncertain terms. You have to read this book, and I'd never heard of this book before. Predictable Revenue. I was like, it was what still is this? new at that point. It was still very new at that point, and he was one of those guys. You look at him, and you're like, I trust every word that comes out of your mouth. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take your advice and read it. So I went home. I think I ordered it on Amazon. It came the next day. Devoured the book. Loved it. And then I started implementing the ideas in the agency. We won some new business and got some fantastic leads from it. And then a lot of those ideas ended up in our pitch decks. And it's just, it really transformed a lot of what we did in the agency at the time. Um, fantastic, fantastic book. What led you to write the book Predictable Revenue in 2011 in the first place? You know, 
Okay, so they're, they're, that's not a simple. Here's the simplest answer. There's never. <laughs> it's like a diamond, right? Or there's like a dice. There's six sides, but the main the main side is because I got married and had kids and had to make more money. Hmm. Because I had you know a family to support. I mean, I'd had the book drafted. I just hadn't you know like published it yet. Uh, so that was kind of the motivation, the kick in the, the ass to really take it. Um, the forcing function. The forcing function. Um, but really, before that, I just didn't. I'd been, in, I always felt like a writer or an author, loved books, and I knew I wanted to do a book for a few years, that book, and had written it ultimately because first it felt right to, and I was excited to share the ideas. And then I also saw how many mistakes people were making with sales. So those are all kind of the answers. And the, 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 the mm-hmm. trigger got pulled because I got married and like I just had to do it. I couldn't sit out it any longer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll come back to that a little bit later in the in the show. But you've you've had an absolutely fascinating career. You've been CEO of successful companies. You've held senior roles within Salesforce, built PredictableRevenue.com. You've written amazing books that have changed the way that I sell, certainly, uh, and hundreds of thousands of people around the world as well. But you get your degree from Stanford University in 1994 in environmental and civil engineering. What did you think you were going to do with your career at that time? Well, also, don't forget, I've been CEO of an unsuccessful company, too. But yes, uh, <laughs> uh, those painful mistakes. So, right. God, you know, when I was graduating college, I back, you know, I'm, I'm almost, I'm 48 now. And so, you know, when I was a teenager, I just don't remember people talking about, like they do now, kind of like, uh, what do you want to do when you grow up? I mean, there's kind of those conversations, but not like it is today so much visibility mm. and transparency to like all the, you know, on opportunity. So I didn't really think about that much. Honestly, I did some com- computer programming and in, in college I did civil engineering. And as you said, and I, by the time I graduated, it's like, I don't want to do civil engineering as a job. And I wanted mm. to get into to business. And there was, you know, the two highest paid kinds of jobs and what sounded more, more interesting were investment banking and consulting. So I never even really knew what sales was. I'd done sales. I had a, a job in the in the newspaper there for a while, but I didn't even think about it as sales. Hmm. And I had a, you know, the summer before I graduated, I did a college, like a house painting franchise for the summer. And I, I made a bunch mm-hmm. of money. And I was selling. I didn't even think about that as sales either. I mean, it wasn't just selling. It was, you know, selling and recruiting and managing people. And the, the sure. Project, da, 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 da. So well, I had no idea. I mean, trust me, like, it's just so weird sometimes I think about having written books and in books that have been in the top, um, you know, there's like lists like the top startup books ever that they're in mm-hmm. or um, Book Authority ranked the impossible to inevitable book as the eighth best uh, startup book ever. And like, it's just kind of strange to think of, to see that because I never saw myself in sales. I never yeah. I even think about myself that way. Still. Yeah. But yeah, you know, see- I just followed life, I guess. I guess so. Fast forward a couple of years and and you spent several years actually at salesforce.com. You were employee 150 and they now have something like 150 million employees or something like that. Yeah, they took over the world basically. (laughs) Basically. Tell us us what that experience was like and, and what did you take away from your time with the firm? Yeah, so I think really I, I did mention I was CEO of an unsuccessful company and that's something important because I went to Salesforce because uh, had been this is 99, 2000, started the company, raised $5 million. Um, and one of the reasons the company went out of business, not the only reason, but one of them is because I didn't really know, I didn't know sales. I didn't know professional sales. 
I didn't know how to build a, a, a sales system with a sales team. I had hired a VP of sales, but I, I abdicated my understanding to them. I didn't delegate. Mm-hmm. So one thing I realized from that is if I want to be CEO again, start another company, I need to know how sales works because that's really the lifeblood of a company. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I was probably late 20s at the time. So what did I know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and back then, like nowadays, it's so easy to hyper accelerate your learning as a 20 something with everything that's around you. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, the only way to really learn sales I'm, is to get a sales job. So I went to salesforce.com. I mean, between company failing and job, there's like a year, year and a half of just dealing, you know, doing other stuff, travel and, and, and do a survival trip and some other things just to, it was so painful. Mm-hmm. Went back to work, uh, getting a job at salesforce.com. Like, and all, the only sales job they had was the lowest level starter job, answering the 800 lines. But I, I was like, whatever, check my ego at the door. Mm. I just want to get to learn. And if you think about it, a job is really a great way to get paid to learn. Sure. And I imagine at that time, salesforce.com would have had a pretty robust sales training program to develop, um, you know, sort of sales superstars, really, and sort of take them through the pipeline with a name like (laughs) salesforce.com, clues in the title. Um, Yeah, I think they had that naturally probably because they were already growing. So there's a natural um, acceleration of people moving up through the ranks and having opportunities. And there's like new jobs being created, like they created uh, like the customer success team and they created mm-hmm. a small business team. And they create. So I, in a, after a few months, proposed creating an outbound prospecting, at least function. Um, Salesforce hadn't been successful at that and they struggle or struggling for leads and, and leads at bigger companies. And I just, just seen that um, like one thing I always advise people is if you're in a company, if you, if you want to make a difference, just go talk to people and kind of figure out what the problems are and then mm. like, propose something. Mm. Solve so, it. Yeah. So they were only Salesforce is 150 people at the time, 25 million in revenue. And really people, very few people have heard about them outside mm. of the area and maybe parts of New York. But, um, you know, I started doing cold calls and cold emails and this is really before LinkedIn and sending books to executives at fortune, you know, 1000 companies on the East coast just to try to mm. figure out how to get appointments with them in a, reg- in a predictable way. Hmm. We'll, we'll come back to that in a, in a moment, but let's talk a little bit about your book from impossible to, to inevitable. You, you wrote that recently with Jason Lemkin, the legendary tech investor to show people how to get um, off the up and down roller coaster of sales growth and revenue. Uh, there are three questions that you help people answer. Why aren't we growing faster? Uh, what does it take to get to hyper growth and how do we sustain it? Uh, and you do that for small businesses all the way up to Fortune uh, 100, 500 businesses. What led you to write the book in the first place? Well, the Predictable Revenue book came out in 2011. Um, and that really the focus is that was really written for sale, primarily sales leaders, like VPs of sales and CEOs who were sales um, but also written for sales reps to read because one of the problems in sales is when the sales rep, the sales manager, and the CEO don't have a common language understanding. Hmm. Um, but after that book, you know, if a few years went by and I wanted to do another one. I just didn't want to do another sales book. And so I really like what Jason Lem- Jason Lem- Jason Lemkin is brilliant. He hmm. started he started EchoSign and grew it to more than 100 million in ARR uh, before sell- selling it to Adobe. 
Hmm. Um, I really liked his stuff. And so we combined forces to do the impossible book. Really, so if predictable revenue was the sale, they call it the sales Bible of Silicon Valley. We wanted to write the growth Bible for Silicon Valley. Wow. And, you know, I think one thing is that um, one of the, the problems I saw after a few years of, of the predictable revenue book com- coming out and people trying to, you know, specialize their sales teams and build outbound prospecting teams, like the most common struggle I saw with them was this idea, for example, that they of nailing a niche. So that mm. become, became the beginning of the impossible book, which is, um, you know, how do you, what does it take? Like, why do companies struggle? If you ever spent money on, on online ads or marketing or sales and you haven't gotten mm-hmm. anything back, you probably haven't nailed the niche. So what does mm. it take for paid, for paid growth to work? Because um, you can, it doesn't matter how much money you're spending on Facebook ads or LinkedIn ads or events or prospecting because it's really easy to waste that money. So how do you nail a niche so you can make that kind of outbound marketing and sales work and get a return well, on it? Well, let's talk a little bit about nailing an, um, a niche or, or a niche, as, as we say here. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but so, so you say that if you haven't nailed a niche, you're not ready to grow. Why is it so hard for businesses to actually focus on nailing a niche? Yeah, it's a little bit, I say, actually, if you're, if you're struggling to grow, it's probably because you ha- you're not ready to grow. Mm. It's the most common reason. There's many reasons you might be struggling. That's the most common. You're not ready to grow. Um, and that's not even just for small businesses or startups. It could be for, for any company. Because um, even big companies like SAP and Oracle can have a real problem with nailing a niche. Not because of a product market fit. It's just because of pure confusion. They have mm. so many products. Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, let's, take, let's start with just to the big company. The more products you have, the more likely it's, you confuse people. Mm-hmm. So the flip side, if you're, if you're a smaller company, a few hundred thousand, a few million in revenue, um, nailing a niche usually means that you've grown up. A lot of your businesses come through relationships and referrals from customers. And it's kind of given you, it's great. Love that. We should, we had more of it, but the problem is you haven't really had been forced to sharpen your kind of targeting with their ideal customer and the language you use with them. Most of the time, if you look at a company that's under five, let's say, you know, 5 million in revenue, um, especially services companies, but it happens with product too. Most of the website will be confusing. Mm. All right. It's really hard. Like no one likes, I mean, websites are always a pain in the ass because they're never perfect. (laughs) Um, But they, hopefully your goal is to make it at least not confusing. If, if, you, if you can't make it clear, at least try to make it not confusing. Most sure. Are just overwhelming. And that creates uh, sort of inertia. Well, that stops people from proceeding, yeah. confuse people. So why, yes, why, I didn't, so the next part is why do people do that? Well, as humans, it's just really hard for us because um, we, uh, as people or as a company, here are all the things we can do. Here's all our opportunities, um, like an agency, right? Yeah, we can do your website language. We could do the copy. We could do the design. We could do the da 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 da. Yeah, we can sure. serve banks and we can serve healthcare and we can serve sure. you know, communications. We can do all that, right? The pro- because you're smart, so you can do lots of things. But the problem is, then you can do lots of things, and at some point, you need to kind of refocus and re-narrow on. Here's really our specialty. 
here's our ideal customer and get over this really kind of partly the fear of missing out as mm-hmm. part of it, of giving up opportunities. If we focus on one opportunity, we're going to give up these others. If we focus just on banks, but what about hospitals? Sure. Maybe, maybe not so much in this environment, but so there's the fear of missing out. And there can also be the fear of uh, kind of playing small. Like if we only do banks, mm. you know, what about the rest of the world? Right. We'll only well, grow so large. Yeah. Exactly. Or if we only do banks, will that be boring? Are we limiting? Mm. So there's, are we limiting? Sure. Ourselves? Sure. And it's really this, um, you know, easier to see once you've done it, when you really focus on something and you're clear about it, that really unlocks your growth in a much easier way. And you also talk about this arc of attention in that people who you already have relationships with will give you far more attention if you just reach out to them because you already have that relationship. But people who are cold to you will only give you a slither of, of, of attention and you need to communicate so much to them with that slither of attention that they give you. So the more niche that you can be, the better your, your communication is able to sort of get through to those people and resonate with them. Yeah. Um, so if you think about especially agencies where so much of the business is done through relationships. Mm-hmm. And when you have a relationship, whether you know the person or they come in through a referral, they're so willing. Like you, like, like you said, if someone you trusted told you to read a book and you're like, okay. Mm-hmm. But sure. yeah, but when you, and so someone who comes, so Bob tells Sarah, Hey, you got to check out that agency. They great work. They're like, sure. I'll spend an hour with them. Trying mm-hmm. to figure out if they can help me. But if that personal relationship isn't there, people aren't going to do that. So what happens is because you haven't really been forced to um, sharpen your messaging to be very, very clear and very compelling, you just are left with messaging that doesn't really resonate with people because you haven't really forced yourself to figure out who your ideal customer is and what is it they really care about, what your specialty is. Like what's your specialty is another way of saying it. And, and effectively, what you're talking about there is is the trust gap, because you say there's this sort of arc of attention and, and, and you say, you write in the book that there's a painful difference between selling to early adopters who trust you to the mainstream buyers who don't trust you. And that's Jeffrey Moore's crossing the chasm uh, sort of idea of moving from the early adopters to the mid um, and, and late adopters. Yeah. So I think it's good to think about we I just I like category two categories, because more than two categories, I kind of lose track. He had four. He had a great book. Yeah, if you haven't read, four or five. Yeah, if you haven't read Crossing the Chasm, it's a great book. Yeah. It's early adopters, then, you know, there's... Innovators. Type, then there's, yeah, laggers yeah. And, the, and the, basically, and then, the, yeah. the people who are... Late adopters, right. You <laughs> <laughs> uh, should have put that in, right. Yeah. So in this case, early adopters and mainstream buyers, I think what we were trying to do is say, look, there's a lot of your customers are early adopters, which can come from two reasons. First, they know you and they trust you, which is fine. But there's also the people that don't really know you, but they see what you're doing and they just, they just get it. They're like, you know what? Yes. I love it. I get it. I'm doing it. I'm in. You don't have to explain it. Yes. Just sign me up basically. (laughs) Um, But those two groups are such a small part of the market. So in the mm. book, I think we said 15%. I mean, we don't really know. Maybe it's, it's they're a fraction of the total market. Yeah. Most people out there. So if you get outside your bubble, your your network bubble, your, your circle of relationships, and you start selling to people who don't know you very well, and this is most of the people out there, and especially bigger companies, 
in bigger companies where it's hard to buy stuff. And even if someone likes you, they have to convince a bunch of other people too. Mm-hmm. And in those, those mainstream buyers, it's important to realize that the amount of, of proof they need is and the amount of re- repetition and explanation and education. Mm-hmm. It's like 50 times more work and documentation than it is for the early adopters. I mean, I'm just picking the number. It's a lot. Sure. The right, numbers, right. Right. And so you have to, especially the proof side, because most buyers are so uh, afraid of getting it wrong or the people on their team are, they need lots mm-hmm. of proof and lots of specific proof. Mm-hmm. Of, and that really is, Oh, have other people like us done this? And if you see enough other people like this, because most people are followers, at least most yeah. parts of their life. I mean, everyone can be a leader some places, but you can't be a leader everywhere. And so in companies, um, most people, for whatever you're selling, most of the time, people are going to be a follower of some sort from what to wherever you're selling. So they need to have you kind of help lead them in the right direction. And they're not going to have the natural energy and enthusiasm to kind of like, like to pick it up and like figure it out and work it out all themselves. So you need to be ready to coach them to mm-hmm. kind of, to, you could say sell to them, mm-hmm. but that's, in other words, it's really, you're helping inspire them and encourage them and show them there's a better way and help them get over their inertia, either their own personal inertia or all the inertia in a bigger company. Cause it's hard buying stuff when you have multiple hmm. people. It's really hard. It is. Um, the guys at Gartner say, you know, if you're selling enterprise deals, it's you're selling to 5.8 people. I don't know what the number is, 5.8, 6.8, 7 people. But you're selling to a lot of people uh, within an organization. It's 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 difficult. You, you also say that consumers don't buy what they need. They buy what they want. How much do consumers spend on Porsches and ice cream compared to broccoli and, and psychotherapy? <laughs> 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 and you also tell your own story about where you were selling a nice to have and you really struggled. And then you had uh, wife, children, you've got nine children, as, as we'll get onto later, and lots of growing expenses. And as soon as you started selling, uh, you move from selling a need to, sorry, you move from selling a nice to have to a need, everything changed for you. Yeah. Explain. Yeah. Well, let's start with my, my personal part first. And I mean, first, I would say that most people aren't selling a nice to have or a need to have. It's really with what you're selling, to whom is it a need to have? And how are they different from the people to whom it's a nice to have? All right. So that's, that's just a good way to think. So for me, again, this is 10, 12 years ago. Um, after Salesforce, I left Salesforce.com uh, 14-ish years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's a few years I spent... I was like, I don't, I don't want to do sales consulting. I want to do something different. And can, let's just call finding myself. Um, hmm. I spent some time at a VC firm. It's, a, it's called an entrepreneur residence. And then I was doing sales consulting to pay the bills. But you know what? I'm like, I know I want to make as much money as I want doing what I love, but I don't know what that is. Hmm. So I'm going to try some stuff. So I, I created something called Unique Genius, which is really helping people make money through enjoyment. Like, how do you tap into what your purpose is and, and turn that into money? That ended up being more uh, coaching, like um, you know, personal coaching and group coaching. I also did something called CEO Flow, turn mm-hmm. your employees into mini CEOs, which is a book. And a little bit, I did a couple projects with businesses on that, um, but those were. But then I got married, and when I had to make more money, 
then now it's probably making 70,000 a year ish as a single person. Cause I didn't have to sure. make a lot, you know, mm-hmm. so I'd work, I was working 20 hours a week on purpose just because I felt That's... like when I worked more than that, I just lost kind of side of my ideas and I don't know, I was just trying it. That's a good wage for 20 hours a week. Yeah. A lot of people wouldn't complain. Yeah. Well, well now I, I still work about 20 hours a week and I make 10 times, 11 times that. Oh, so, well, fair enough. <laughs> and, um, but part of that was, um, cause I had to, I had to got yeah. married, went from zero to nine kids within six years from through some through birth, some through marriage, some through adoption, a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, so for me, like the, when I had to focus, I had to make more money. I went back to predictable revenue, like outbound prospecting. Uh, cause as much as I love doing unique genius, it was just a, too much work I, to be able to make that the money I needed to make. It just wasn't the same, uh, in CEO flow. So when I look at, there's a chart in the book and basically says, um, which kinds of companies have you made the most money with, sure. or you've delivered the most value, they've gotten the most value and they've been the easiest to work with the easiest to win. And for me, those were the sales consulting projects, the outbound prospecting projects, predictable revenue. Right. So they needed me, like the result was very tangible and clear. Like, you know, like when you can sell money, like anytime you can sell money, it's easier. Sure. Right. So and what do you mean by selling money? Just explain that for people that don't um, know. Just making it clear. It doesn't have to be dollars, but making it clear to the person who's interested in buying your services how this is going to translate to, t- to specific results. So that mm. might actually be dollars, like, you know, sales consulting. It might be a specific, like a conversion rate. It's something that either is money or some equivalent to them. Like the more tangible of result, this is, so here's one of the most important points when you're selling to mainstream buyers, right? People where there's not a real prior relationship. Mm-hmm. You need to have some kind of concrete, tangible results that you can promise to them. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that involves numbers. And because that helps cut, that helps um, clarify shorten the decision. Shorten mm. the decision, like clarify to them what they're doing. Um, you don't need those quite as much with the relationships. When you don't have a relationship, they're essential. And you also need mm. proof, examples from other people as much as possible. Uh, and that can become from a demo, like case studies, it can come from doing a demonstration or a trial project. But all those like tangible results, demonstration, proof the bar goes way up with those mainstream buyers. So I mean, for me, I had, again, the most tangible results kind of demonstrations and proof in sure. my sales consulting, right? Working at salesforce.com, writing predictable revenue, or at least publishing it. And what's interesting then I might, I'm, I'm planning on going back to Unique Genius next to redo mm. it. Cause now I've had 10 years of <coughs> living those, oh geez, there's a dog in here. Hey, <laughs> Oh. Sneaky. Um, we've got four dogs too, not just nine kids. Oh, wow. Well, he you, you can never have too much to do. Right. That's a pretty busy house. Uh, but we're never bored here with lockdown. So, the, you know, again, I'm, I've lived my own uh, 10 years of like making money again, 11xing my, my income to over, you know, seven or 800,000 a year, still working, mm. you know, 15 to 25 hours a week. Mm-hmm. and kind of living the unique gene. So anyway, now that I've got more proof, I, I think I can go back to redoing right. this unique genius I see. So for agencies, especially in services companies, which were by definition, the service offerings can often be vague. Mm-hmm. It's so much more important to try to come up. Where have you had the best results with the most proof or the, the most concrete 
how can you find concrete results to share in case studies or examples and tie your projects to those? So that's really, again, this idea of selling money. When you get translate what you do to money or the equivalent, it's going to be easier to sell what you do. Now let's talk a little bit about lead generation because in 2011, when you wrote Predictable Revenue, there were three main ways to generate leads, uh, seeds, nuts, and spears. And we can go into the specifics of what each of those three three things mean. But now we're in 2020. How has lead generation evolved and changed since your, from your earlier work in, in 2011? Yeah. Um, so yeah, seeds, nuts, and spears. Really, that came about because as a... Um, exec, I, was, I remember sitting down and talking to a VP of marketing who had to present to the board of directors of a company. And, you know, this whole idea of there's different leads with different expectations. Right? A lead is not a lead is not a lead. And we're trying to figure out how to educate the board directors on just because we did a thousand leads last year. If we want to double revenue, we, we doesn't mean we need 2000 leads next year. We need, might need like 5,000 leads. We might need five mm. times as many leads. We might need 10 times as many leads. Because, for example, one word of mouth lead could be worth 50 marketing leads or webinar mm-hmm. leads or 100 webinar leads. So seeds, nets, and spears. Seeds really means if there's ways to – word of mouth, right? And they're hard, to, they're hard to systematize. So we recognize that probably the best ways to have a formal customer success management program mm-hmm. to make sure you're as much as possible your customers get success with your projects and, and capture those learnings and, and hopefully document them, case studies and testimonials. Um, word of mouth are great, the best leads, but they're just hard to grow. They're different. So those are the seeds. The nets really marketing, casting a wide net. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's usually quantity over quality. So getting a bunch of leads at which most won't be a good fit. But, you know, inbound marketing is great. And the last one, Spears, outbound prospecting Mm -hmm. uh, or outbound business development, where you usually have a targeted list and a human who's, you know, usually calling, emailing, LinkedIn, or some other form of outreach to the list, either to set up partnerships or to see if there's uh, appointments for sales appointments for customers. So all those three are important. Really, the key is, again, when you're especially looking at how to best grow your business, looking at what's worked for you in the past. And if you want to grow, how many, like each type of lead has different kind of like steps, different metrics, different funnels, different sales right. cycle lengths, mm-hmm. how to better kind of think ahead. What do we need to do to, to grow our business? What kinds of leads do we need to generate? And how many of them do we need to hit our goals? But, and in terms of, sorry. Yeah, they're still, you know, they're all they're still the same today. Um, I don't think the thing that's changed is a lot more technology in all of them in customer success, kind of word of mouth in marketing, in, in outbound. I mean, there's now there's thousands and every year there's like thousands of apps being created across sure. everything. It's just overwhelming. Going sure. back to the challenge of nailing a niche because you're, yeah. everyone's in a crowded space with lots of competitors that all sound the same and are pretty good. Really, really interesting. So, the, so the fundamental, approach hasn't really changed that much in fact it's probably even more important to uh, focus on those three and start with nailing a niche because it's even busier out there there's more noise than ever before really really fascinating um final question uh aaron before we get into our favorite questions towards the end of the interview this interview has gone way too fast and we're going to have to get you get you back on the show because there's a million questions that uh 
I'd like to ask you, which we haven't got time for. But um, but you say that it's hard to build a business out of small deals. So figure out how to double your deal size. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, so um, I guess it's just through experience where, you know, and this is all relative. Like if you're a company that sells a B2B SaaS, um, so you sell to other businesses, if you can, it's just generally easier if you sell $1,000 deals or 1,000-pound deals today, mm-hmm. or let's say it's like 500 pounds a month, you know, recurring. Um, it's usually a lot easier to grow your company faster by going up market and selling to bigger companies. Mm-hmm. So how do you sell 10, how do you sell 1,000-pound deals? How do you sell 5,000-pound a month deals? Uh, because those bigger companies tend to be more work, but not you know, 10 times more work sure. and they're more stable. They're more stable. They tend to mm-hmm. also have more resources to invest in making sure they get the most out of your product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can, and, and move up towards, you know, then 50,000 pound a month and who knows how big, mm-hmm. um, but on the, on the flip side, when you try to go down market and again, there's always exceptions, but usually if you ha- sell 500 services, 500 pounds a month, and you try to go down to make it easier for like, uh, you know, 50 pound a month customers, like you need so many of them mm. to make the numbers work. And a lot of the small customers tend to attrit faster. They struggle more. They want mm-hmm. extra, like they're usually very short on money. So they want sure. a lot more uh, service for their money. Mm-hmm. So they tend to be more difficult. So the little deals can be great to get started. Like you're getting customers and feedback and build a community. But if you're, if you're a B2B, and again, usually like an agency or a SaaS company or whoever you are, you usually want to go up market as soon as you can. Mm. Super, uh, just super. To, it's, yeah, it's just an easier way to, to make more money with and have customers honestly be more successful with you usually. Mm. Super fascinating. Aaron, I've only got you for a few more minutes, so let's get into everyone's favorite questions. These, these are the questions that I ask all of my guests, so I'm super excited to ask you some of them as well. Um, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, I mentioned that company, uh, so it's called Lease Exchange that failed and lost all that money. And, uh, and I was, re- that was really, like, business-wise, that was the thing that I really learned. I, if I'm going to be an entrepreneur, CEO, I need to know sales. And honestly, I would encourage everyone, sales is a life skill. Hmm. You can't accomplish anything in life, whether you want to start a nonprofit or get a job or a promotion unless you know how to sell yourself a product or hmm. an idea. Hmm. I would I would double click on that one. Super fascinating. Tell us about some of your early early mentors who influenced the way that you think about sales, new business, marketing, etc. Uh, well, there's really two books that were incredibly influential back when I was at Salesforce. One was called Wooden. It's about the UCLA basketball coach John Wooden, the most uh, okay. kind of winningest, and that was really on the management side. Yeah. Uh, it's just easy to read book. It's blue. It's I'm sure on Amazon everywhere. And the other one okay. is the, the Toyota way. And it's really hmm. about Toyota. I don't know how Toyota is doing today, but 15, 20 years ago, they were like the, the top of the heap in the car world uh, and about their lean manufacturing and manufacturing principles. And so that was very influential that, and also a book called lean six Sigma on hmm. sales process. Just, you know, I think of it, I was an engineer in school and I think of sales as like a assembly line. So those are the two books that really were the most influential at the time. 
Really interesting. We've answered the uh, the book's question and the mentor's question in one. That was the next question I was about to ask you. What's your favorite book? Um, what's the most interesting thing that people don't know about Aaron Ross? Uh, great question. Um, I mean, we mentioned that we've lived, moved to Scott Edinburgh, I think. We mentioned that? Uh, off, 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 off air. I don't think we oh, okay. recorded that. <laughs> but uh, you're in Edinburgh, yeah. Edinburgh. So we moved here we, with five, technically the five youngest kids, although we have a bunch more older ones visiting because of the pandemic. Right. Uh, love it here. Some good family reasons, really. And uh, maybe one other thing, I'm learning guitar still, slowly but surely. I'm, I'm very, I'm not very good at it, but I'm, I'm, I'm plugging away at it. You're sticking, you're sticking with it. I'm sticking to, oh, sorry, actually one here, sorry. And I love, for some reason, I'm just the last couple months really getting into composting. Just have a composting? Yeah, cause, I don't know, it's fun. Like, it's just like taking the food out and like digging in the leaves and I get to shovel stuff. Huh, okay. Um, I guess yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet, but maybe <laughs> maybe yeah. I will. Maybe I will in a few yeah. years. I'm... <laughs> yeah, it's just, a, you know, it's just one of those weird interests that I'm just like, you know what, mm-hmm. I don't care. I just, it's going to be cool. Let's yeah, get into exactly. it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a reason other than I just want yeah. to. I love it. Why not? Uh, in the last three to five years, what ideas, behaviors, or habits have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes? Um, gee, that's a hard one, you know. The one I'm like, our life has been so all over the place for years. I mean, obviously, adding more kids mm-hmm. has uh, improved it in many ways, uh, made it more challenging than others. But because um, I think in the last, it's been three years since we had our last baby, but. So adopting a baby four years ago, having a baby three years ago is one. And I would say the one I'm working on adding now is really probably like taking naps. Mm. So, yeah, just with a big family, that's something I don't get quite enough of is sleep and do need it. I'm not one of these people who's like, I don't need sleep. I'm like, oh, really <laughs> yeah, I definitely yeah. need sleep. I definitely need sleep, yeah. I'm sure you're not getting much sleep with 12 kids. By the way, 12 kids by an American standard is a pretty large family. Why did you decide to have such a a large family? Um, you know, we just felt like it. So yeah, we've got nine kid kids. We fostered some others, and we do want to adopt again. Um, so we could end end up at twelve or more at some point. But um, you know, we just—I'm not sure. You know, it just kind of happened that way because again, four of the mm. kids have been adopted, and we've, we, my wife, always wanted to adopt since she was young. Mm-hmm. I never really thought about it until. She had two kids from a primary, so basically just emotionally adopted those two. We had mm-hmm. a baby. Then we talked about adoption, and we adopted a uh, physically challenged boy from China. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of, you know, led to some, we adopted a couple teenagers, and then um, had a baby, then adopted a black baby from a mom who's on drugs. And we, mm-hmm. so I it just kind of led that life. I just kind of, wow. just outright and. It's a kind of, it's, I guess, it's the main way that we want to, we're, we're giving back. I mean, we don't, we don't adopt to, how to explain this? It's kind of weird. We, we adopt because we want to. I mean, it's hard not to see tough situations out there. Like, yeah. if you've ever been to an orphanage in uh, sure. anywhere, right? In China or Africa, or if you've been seeing the foster care system in the States. And I don't know what it's like sure. in the UK, but it's just, it's just horrendous. And yeah, not great. So it's kind of a way to help. Mm. Um, it's been great for our family. I mean, Having lots of kids and, and adopting is not without challenges, but yeah. the rewards have been much, much bigger, much better. We have yeah. a very diverse family in age and background and race and language and yeah. everything. Absolutely it's, love it. It's, great. it's a great family. 
It's really beautiful. And I saw just today your email um, sort of compilation of your family on, on your video signature. And it's just the most beautiful five minutes that I've had today. It's just sitting down and watching all of your children play and go to ballet and play basketball and just, yeah, it's a really beautiful sight to see. Um, uh, last couple of questions and then I'll, I'll let you go. What advice would you give to a young person or a millennial who says that they want to become an entrepreneur? Um, well, I, I think probably just how long a journey can be, how difficult it can be, because there's so much great advice out there, right? And yeah, you do need to learn sales. That's something you need to learn. You need to learn da 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 da. Um, but I don't know how often people really talk about how many years it takes. Um, I mean, mm. it takes years longer than you want. Um, <laughs> years and years. So, and like how Definitely. how up and down it is. Because we're yeah. surrounded by social media stories of everyone, you know, like people partying on boats and holding wads mm. of cash and all, mm -hmm. and all this. And the Lamborghinis, right? Yeah, it's like it's come on. It's it's. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's probably people who do that for real, but yeah, it just it takes years. And even once you have a business, and I, so I'm co-CEO, it's a five-ish million dollar business, 55 people. Um, and it's great having that. It doesn't solve all your problems. I and mean, you still have other problems like dealing with like managing people and if mm. the company's doing well versus not doing well. And um, so kind of being an entrepreneur is a great path if that's something that feels important. Not It's not for everyone. Mm. And if you want to do that, it, for people, it, it's, you kind of have to expect it to be a long and emotionally challenging journey hmm. and and that's okay it's like parenting honestly that way it's the long and emotionally challenging journey but the reward the rewards are great they're there yeah but they're yeah. few and far between really really interesting um, and my final question aaron what do you know about business becoming a salesman and entrepreneurship today that you wish you knew when you first started your career um you know, it's almost like how how the level that you need to be at to be, I don't, I don't know if I have a, to break through. It's so much higher than people realize. You what know, do you mean by that? Break, you know, like the breakthrough success to predictable revenue. Like that, mm -hmm. it's really, I mean, it just felt right. Like that's really hard to do. Uh, even I like, I don't know if I, if I can, how to do that again in a way. I mean, I'm sure I will at some point, but. Or if you want to be a breakout person on TikTok or, or on uh, Amazon or like mm. the level of the quality, both the talent you have to put in and kind of the marketing or promotion skills you have to do, mm. um, it's way higher than people realize. Mm. I don't, I'm not even sure how to put it into words. It's just, it's not that it's unreachable, but it's not like, it's almost like you want to be a rock musician. Okay. You want to play in front of a stadium. How long do you think it would take for you to... I mean, maybe for some people, they just have a natural talent, but sure. it's like, if you want to play in front of a stadium of people in a band. Oh, to 80,000 people. Something like yeah. that. Okay. That's probably right. not that different from wanting to get like a million subscribers, you know, whatever your dreams of breaking sure. success are. It, it's, you know, if it happens faster, great. But I think where people shoot themselves in the foot is thinking, oh, within, you know, six months or yeah. two years. Sure. Knows, it, it, yeah, maybe. And then I know I've... Uh, it's, it's just so, it's so much higher than people realize yeah. because we're surrounded by so much greatness. It just seems normal, but it's not. There you go. And, and it's those stories that are at the top of the economist or the, or the business news press that sort of, you know, overnight success, six months, this startup goes from nothing to Facebook yeah. 
in six months, and those are the stories that we hear. So we think that yeah. that's normal, but so it's that means far that you from. Have to, you really got to practice your craft. You really mm-hmm. have to stick to it, and you know, just you got to like. It might be that might be writing. It might be dance, whatever that is. It's both the, the craft, kind of the art you pick, as well as the the promotion of it. How you because you might be an amazing artist, but if you're not good at putting it up on Instagram or whatever your whatever your marketing tool of choices or through word of mouth, and I mean, how many? I'm sure there's been countless geniuses who labored in obscurity, which is fine if you don't care. And but if you want to have that kind of breakout business success, yeah, it's like just the craft of the, of the whatever you're doing day to day design or yeah. sales or and kind of, uh, I guess, promotion is expansion or audience building some, some way how to get it out there. It just, yeah, it's they're they're high. So it doesn't mean don't do it, go for it. Just means you got to be prepared to stick to it and commit and double down yeah. on how yeah, commit to like getting better at it and not uh, giving up on it. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. There were all these micro skills. hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm. You have to keep stick to it. By the way, podcasts are a great way to start. Interview series. Yeah. Agency deal masters is a great segue. You get to yeah, you get to learn from people, you get to meet, yep. expand your network, that you get to create content. There's all kinds of things you get to do. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. This has been absolutely fascinating. Aaron Ross, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure, Nathan. Happy to be here. We have been speaking with Aaron Ross. He is currently the CEO of Predictable Revenue. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to 84 such conversations we've had with world-class sales and marketing leaders. Please head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review, no less than five stars, please. Email me at nathanagencydealmasters.com. We would be unable to do this show without our very own dealmasters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve Megeki is our booker slash project manager. Mariam Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. And we're done. That is brilliant.